you know, we are trying to tackle a climate emergency. So I have not got the luxury of wallowing around in imposter syndrome. All I've got to do is show up every single day and try my best and just rinse, wash, repeat on that without fail. Welcome to Good On Purpose. This is a podcast for anyone searching for something more meaningful in their life and work. I'm Nilesha Chauvet, Managing Director of Good, a purpose-driven creative agency working with brands and charities to help make the world a better place. In each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've made a conscious and deliberate decision to give something back. People from all walks of life who represent a new generation of leaders changing and shaping the world today. Listen in as I dig deep to get to the very heart of the story they really want to tell, and most importantly, to understand why they're telling it now. In this episode, I'm talking to Tessa Clark, the co-founder and CEO of Olio. Olio was set up in 2015. It's an app that helps connect neighbors with one another and also with local businesses so that surplus food can be shared to avoid it being thrown away. Today, almost 5 million people have joined the Olio app and Olio claimed that over 34 million portions of food have been shared. I talked to Tessa about food waste, one of the biggest problems facing humanity, a problem she says is hidden in plain sight. And I ask her to share her thoughts on how we can help solve this world problem together. Tessa, a very warm welcome to Good On Purpose. Uh, It's so wonderful to have you. So thanks so much for agreeing to speak to us. Thank you for inviting me. So talk to me about Olio. So Olio, as a purposeful business, has achieved tremendous success uh, in a very short space of time. So it's global, scalable, high impact. Before we come to the story of how you set up, I'd love to explore how you first became aware of the issue of food waste and why, of all the problems in the world, this is the one that you feel so passionately about. So I think like most people, I had absolutely no clue about the problem of food waste. And I got introduced to it through a personal experience I had seven years ago. I was living and working in Switzerland, moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said to me that I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, I'm a farmer's daughter originally, so I know from first-hand experience just how much hard work goes into producing food. And as a, as a result of that, I have a pathological hatred for food waste. So when they asked me to chuck this food away, I was clearly not prepared to do that. So instead, I set out into the streets, clutching this food, hoping to find someone to give it to. And unfortunately, I failed miserably. I wasn't to be defeated, though. So I went back to my apartment. And when they weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes. And that was the moment when I thought, wow, this is absolutely crazy. The lengths I'm going to to avoid throwing away food. And I'm probably performing a criminal offense right now. But to me, it felt even more criminal to put perfectly good food (laughs) in the bin. So I had that experience. And at that point in time, I'd been working in the digital world for over a decade. And I knew there was an app for absolutely everything. And I couldn't believe there wasn't a simple app where I could just advertise my food. Whoever wanted it who lived nearby could request it and they could pop around and pick it up. So that was really the light bulb moment for Oreo, I guess, if you'd like. But at that point in time, I had no idea whether this was just 
a small personal experience I was having or whether there was a much bigger problem sitting behind it. And after I had shared the idea of this neighbor-to-neighbor food sharing app with my co-founder, Sasha, the first thing we did was to research the problem of food waste. And what we discovered absolutely blew our brains. We could not believe that people went screaming from the rooftops about this enormous problem. And so very briefly, we learned that globally, a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away, which is worth over a trillion US dollars. Alongside that, there are 800 million people who go to bed hungry every night, who could be fed on just one quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And then the real shocker was discovering the environmental impact of food waste. So if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And that's because a landmass larger than China is used every single year to grow food that's never eaten. And then as if all of that weren't enough... The final bit of the jigsaw puzzle that we discovered was that in a country such as the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. And so that means that we, each and every one of us, are responsible for half of that enormous problem that I have just outlined. And the reason why we're half of the problem is because typical British household throws away just over 20% of their weekly shop. That's worth over £700 sterling per family per year collectively adds up to £14 billion. And I should say that we were really surprised at how much food waste took place in the home and how little took place at a retail store level. So we discovered that actually retail stores are only 2% of all food waste, which is super counterintuitive. Uh, But that's because there's only 10 or 15,000 supermarkets throwing away perhaps half a percentage point. So we kind of went on that journey of feeling like we were kind of waking up in some sort of dystopian nightmare and couldn't believe that actually this is our reality of our world. And then once you've had your eyes open to food waste, it's everywhere. Absolutely everywhere you turn, you suddenly start seeing it and something that you'd kind of not not seen before. So Sasha and I were then extremely galvanized to solve this problem, particularly because we've both got young kids. And so we're really, really mindful of the future world that they're inheriting. So the scale of the problem is actually staggering. I mean, those statistics that you're reeling off are just mind-blowing. So why don't you think that there's enough awareness of it? Because obviously those statistics are, I mean, they speak for themselves, don't they? Yeah, they do. I think there are several reasons for that. One of which is that I think because food is seen as sort of natural and organic and sort of comes from the land and... Therefore, people assume that actually if you kind of throw away food, it can't be that damaging. It's not like throwing away plastic. Like Everybody would know if you were to throw away some plastic that that's a terrible thing to do, whereas food is just seen as much more natural. But actually, there was just to add to the litany of horrible stats, one I came across very recently was from RAP Scotland, which said that one kilogram of food waste produces the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as landfilling 25,000 plastic bottles. And I bet if you were to stop most people in the street and say, what is worse, a single plastic bottle or a kilogram of food waste, they'd probably say a single plastic bottle. But actually, you know, that's just not true. Yeah, they probably would. It's 25,000 plastic bottles equals one kilogram of food waste. So I definitely think there's something to do with the fact that it's very natural. I think the other challenge that we have is that a lot of food waste is taking place in relatively kind of quote-unquote small quantities in lots of places so it's taking place all over 
And each individual person or each individual store thinks, well, this isn't that much. But we're not doing the maths and figuring out how the cumulative impact of all those small amounts adds up to an enormous, enormous amount of food waste. And, and we find that in particular with people in their homes, people might think, well, you know, I'm sort of just chucking away two brown bananas. It, it's just me. That's not a big deal, right? And it, it isn't a big deal. You're just chucking away two brown bananas. But there are 28 million other households who are doing exactly that same thing that week. And so that's how very, very quickly this problem becomes so enormous. Yeah, I mean, even if you can't get your head around the statistics, it's the complete tension in in the problem where you've got, you know, waste, incredible waste versus widespread hunger, which is, I don't think, something that we're talking about enough. Would you agree? Sort of yes and no. So I do think that when the topic of food waste is raised, actually very instinctively, the first place people go to is to hunger. And they think, right, well, we need to get all these hungry people eating this food waste. Unfortunately, the size of the food waste problem is multipliers larger than the number of hungry people there are to eat it. And I think we have limited our thinking and limited our ability to tackle the problem of food waste because we have said this food must go to hungry people. And so if we take retail stores as a classic example of this, a business will have food waste and they'll say, right, this must go to hungry people. That then sort of kicks off actually a very long supply chain and set of activities through which actually the vast majority of food waste can't go. So, you know, hot food or cold food or chilled food or frozen food can't go down that route. Food with a use-by date of midnight, you know, of today, which has to be eaten by midnight, can't go down that route. Often small quantities can't go down that route. And our real sort of breakthrough with Olio is we said, well, let's break that connection. Let's just say that as a principle, food should be eaten. And so rather than trying to take it down a very long supply chain to get to people who are definitely in need, let's just redistribute it to absolutely anybody who is nearby in the local community who wants it. And what that does is that then means that 100% of all of that surplus food from that business, for example, could be redistributed. So we have 25, sorry, 35,000 trained volunteers. These are food waste heroes who collect unsold food from local businesses, such as a Tesco, for example. And they'll take that food home. They'll add it to the app. Within minutes, the neighbours are requesting it. And minutes later, they're popping around to pick it up. And that is enabling those businesses to have zero food waste locations. And... The food is going to anyone who lives in that local community who wants it. And of course, there are some members of that community in every community in the UK, unfortunately, who are having a tough time, who are struggling. So I I think we've got to be quite careful because about tying that knot too closely between food waste and hunger, because we need everyone to get involved to solve the food waste problem and also the solution to hunger and food poverty is not random handouts of surplus food. Actually, it's you know access to a proper living wage and proper sort of social support services and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there definitely are two twin evils um, that do mm, intersect on a day-to-day basis, but we have to be very careful not to have that very simplistic view of that kind of these two problems can solve each other and we can all live happily ever after. Unfortunately, it's not quite as easy as that. No, it's and it's easy to resort to simplistic views 
isn't it? When you don't have the full spectrum of the conversation, or maybe you don't have the insight that you have. So you've obviously studied this problem quite extensively. You've done lots of research, I'm sure, in setting up your business. So what were the main sources of inspiration and learning then? Where did you learn about this this issue? Well, the first bit of learning, kind of all, I guess, those stats that I quoted to you at the beginning, that that was just good old desk research. Unfortunately, back then, when was it, 2015, that data and that story was not neatly mapped out. This was something that we were just Googling and Googling and Googling. And we started sort of piecing it together a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. And each bit was just even more mind-blowing slash depressing in equal measure. And we continue to discover new pieces of that jigsaw puzzle. So, you know, the stat I gave you about plastic bottles is is a very recent piece of data. Something that we discovered, I think it was last year, was a piece of work called Project Drawdown, which is by several hundred of the world's leading climate change scientists. And they said, enough of the doom and gloom about the climate crisis. Let's stack rank the top 100 solutions. And actually in position number one, they ranked reducing food waste. And that came above solar power, above electric cars and above a plant-based diet. So we're definitely on the research piece, kind of, I guess, building on the shoulders of others, the the great works of universities and government bodies who are really measuring and monitoring this stuff. The research we've done directly ourselves has really been through talking to our community and getting a much deeper understanding about why does food waste happen. And I think our major sort of aha moment was when we realized that there are lots of reasons why we have too much food. So your plans change during the week, right? You might eat out or order a takeaway instead of eating what you had planned. You might over-cater for a party. You might go on a diet. You might receive unwanted food gifts. Your kid might have loved this food one week and then the next week decided they hate it. So there's no shortage of reasons why we have too much surplus food. Food dates, again, is another real problem there. But what turns that food from being surplus food into food waste is the fact that we're no longer connected to our local communities. And so we no longer have someone to give that surplus food to. So what we've discovered is no one enjoys throwing away food. You know, it's absolute madness to enjoy throwing away food. It is literally our life source. So we have evolved over millions of years to really want to protect it and to consider it to be very precious. But we throw it away in the modern age because we're disconnected from our local communities in a way that we never have been before. It's interesting because you're talking about food waste in terms of our food habits, which of course is so intrinsic to our lifestyle. Yeah. So just in terms of very practical advice then day to day, what would your advice be then to help us reduce the amount of food waste in our everyday lives? So I live by what I call the five S's. So the first S is to shop with a plan. Uh, It doesn't sound particularly sexy, but actually it's a lot more fun than it sounds to kind of one day a week plan out your meals. And the top tip there would be to make sure that you always have one meal as what I call a cupboard meal. So that if your plans do change, then it's only the cupboard meal you're not using and that's not perishable. So it doesn't matter. So the first one is to shop with a plan. And that's probably the most powerful thing that you can Mm. do. The next one is to store your food properly. There are hundreds and hundreds of food storage tips and tricks that you can find online. Some of my favorites are that onions and potatoes should never be stored together. 
tomatoes shouldn't be kept in the fridge. You can dramatically extend the shelf life of bananas, for example, by putting a little tinfoil hat or beeswax wrap around the top of the bunch. Herbs should be kept like flowers. So there's loads of knowledge and information that you can use to make sure that your food lasts a lot longer through storing it properly. The third S is serving up sensible portion sizes. And a super simple hack here is just to use smaller plates. The bigger the plate, no, I love that. the more of your tendency <laughs> to pile more food on it. And then we all suffer Absolutely. from our, kind of our eyes being bigger than our stomachs. So uh, serve sensible portion sizes. The fourth S is to save your leftovers. And we've honestly had some of our best meals as a family, just being this random hodgepodge medley of food that we've got out of the fridge from our leftovers because food just tastes so much better after it's marinated for a few days. And then the final S is, you know, shameless plug for Olio. But if none of the above worked, then to share your spare with a neighbor through the Olio app. And a lot of people often when they encounter Olio, they think, well, will anyone really want my two lemons or my three update tins of soup or whatever it might be that they have? And the answer to that is a massive resounding yes. So half of all the food added to the app is requested in less than 21 minutes. So our number one challenge as a business is encouraging everybody, like literally everyone who is listening to this podcast, to take the 10 seconds or so that it requires to share their spare food, run, throw it away. I I love your five S's because I think what strikes me in this space is that when we're talking about big world issues and problems, sometimes you really do need to boil it down to some very simple, practical changes that we can apply in our daily lives. I love that. They don't sound earth shattering, do they? It's like, really? Can we save the world through doing this stuff? And it's like, actually, yes, we can. Honestly, yes, we can. If we can get millions and then hundreds of millions and billions of people all just taking those small actions, then that is how we have absolutely transformational impact. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the problem then a little bit more in detail. So where do you think the main source of responsibility for this problem lies and therefore the greatest opportunity for change lies? Well, they're they're two sort of slightly different questions. So if we look at where food waste takes place, and we'll use the UK, and the source of this data is RAP, which is the government body, W-R-A-P. So half of all food waste takes place in the home. So, And that is the single largest source of food waste in this country. So that's kind of the number one place to focus. Um, Then if you go kind of up the chain a little bit, 2% of all food waste is generated by retail stores, which is really shocking to people. It's super counterintuitive. Then you've got hospitality and leisure, which is roughly 10%. You've then got manufacturing, which I think is around about 15%. And then the remainder, which is just under a third, I think, is at the farm gate. So if you then look at sort of how we, your second part of your question, which is kind of where can we have the biggest impact and where can we make the change happen? No great surprise that we are super passionate at Olio about the food waste in the home. Makes sense. Because from what we can see, governments and businesses are being so remiss and so slow in dealing with this problem that actually we can just empower absolutely everybody to make a difference 
then we don't have to wait for governments. We don't have to wait for businesses. We can just um, start the change ourselves. So that's our kind of main area of focus. The other sort of the second biggest area of food waste is food waste that takes place sort of at the farm gate. And responsibility for that largely does lie with the large food businesses that are often setting extremely exacting cosmetic standards. And that kind of cannot often make it uneconomic for a farmer to even harvest a field if you know, more than X percent doesn't meet those cosmetic standards. Although, again, it's worth asking, well, why are those businesses setting those cosmetic standards? It's because of us. It's because if you give us free reign and give us, you know, kind of a box of apples or a box of cucumbers, we very instinctively go towards the biggest, the roundest, uh, et cetera. So again, whenever I see, you know, and whenever I see kind of, you know, a lonely banana in the supermarket or a slightly wonky looking cucumber, I'm first to grab that because I know that that is the one that's most likely to go to waste. But for sure, the, the businesses have a, a major responsibility to play there. And then in terms of government, there's a couple of things that would be game-changing that the government could do in this space. The first one would be to make it mandatory for businesses to have to measure and report on their food waste in their supply chains. And that would really, really result in a step change in their willingness to engage with organizations such as Olio and many others that are trying to solve the food waste problem for businesses. Because at the moment, it all takes place very much behind closed doors. And you know, that old adage that sunlight is the best form of disinfectant is, is absolutely correct. And there is a consultation that should be coming out uh, soon. It's two years late, but the government is going to be running a consultation about mandating that medium and large sized businesses have to report their food waste data. The other thing that I think needs to be addressed is food, food date labeling. There is an enormous amount of confusion for people because they will see a used by date and a best before date and they don't know the difference and they get very confused. The used by date is a health and safety date. The best before date absolutely is not. That's just about when that food is optimal for consumption from a taste or composition or aesthetics point of view. And that food can often be safely and deliciously eaten for weeks, months, even years after that best before date. But people get confused and they throw away perfectly good food because of that best before date. So I would love to see that date, that date removed. That's interesting, isn't it? Because when you talk about reporting and you talk about things like labeling, that just helps accountability. Yeah. Doesn't it? And as you say, I, I don't think there's enough awareness for consumers in terms of education of this issue. I mean, and, yeah. and again, some of the small details that are really quite vital in in yeah. our in changing behaviour. Yeah, one hundred percent. And actually, that would probably be my well, that definitely would be my third ask to government would be if we want to solve our food waste problem, we have got to be bringing cooking classes back into school. We have to be educating people about food, where it comes from. You know, like every child should have the opportunity to grow some carrots. And it is only through that process of understanding what is required to grow something that you have this brand new appreciation of what goes into food and just how precious and valuable it is. And similarly, teaching kids at school how to cook, how to preserve and store food, how to get creative with their leftovers. I think these are essential life skills. And we have multiple generations now who do not possess those skills. And as a result, we're in this, this food waste crisis that we're in today. 
And, and I think it is a crisis, isn't it? And you're so right. It does start from an early age. How can we expect the children of tomorrow, you know, when they turn 18, to be behaving in a certain way more responsibly if they're not educated from an early yeah. age and we're teaching them those habits? Yeah, 100%. So if I cast your mind back then to the time when you were setting up Olio, because it, it strikes me looking at your background that you have been an sort of entrepreneur in training, haven't you? You've you've <laughs> studied business, you've had yeah. some great roles. How did you know that this was the idea? And how did you go about testing it to make sure that it was market ready? So again, lots of questions in that. I think when I look back now, it's ret and I sort of understand myself a lot better. It is retrospectively obvious to me that I would have become an entrepreneur, but I'm really quite frustrated about the fact that it actually took me so long to figure that out. And a big part of the reason why it took me so long to figure that out is because the concept of entrepreneurship did not feel like it was for someone like me. You know, if I look at my gender, <laughs> just as an easy starting yeah. point, right? And yeah, all the role models, everything that you read about in, in the media is these kind of young tech bros who dropped out of college and eat ramen noodles and wear hoodies and and they're the they're just the voices of entrepreneurship and so and, and I I now sort of I can't believe I, I went to Stanford Business School and studied for my MBA I was in the heart of Silicon Valley and yet I didn't attend a single entrepreneurship class because I just did not think that was for me it, it was just this kind of or a mystique around it. it just felt like a club where I was not welcome or would not fit in. So it did take me a long time to get round to entrepreneurship. I would say that in the last sort of five years of my corporate career, I was very lucky to be able to attend a number of leadership courses. And I found myself listening to all these amazing on and inspirational people speaking to us from the stage. And I can remember so vividly just reflecting them back on myself. And whilst I had a great CV, I didn't feel proud of my CV and what I had accomplished. I didn't feel inspired by myself. And I was getting increasingly sick and tired of just not being inspired by myself. And so I had this sort of entrepreneurial itch and I recognized that I wanted to do my own thing. But I spent several years not able to take action for the reasons we've already touched on, but also I think I was going about it the wrong way. I was waiting for sort of a big idea to hit me. And I have realized that actually what I should have done was to go out into the world and just look for a problem that I can see that I'm really passionate about solving. And if I had done that, then probably I would have moved into entrepreneurship much more quickly. And the other thing that was critical to enabling me to move into entrepreneurship was my co-founder, Sasha. I do not believe I would have had the courage or self-belief to move into entrepreneurship by myself. But when you do it with someone else, suddenly you are no longer alone. <laughs> You're no longer entirely crazy, uh, or at least there's another crazy person with you. And so that was really, really instrumental in getting Olio started. And then, as I say, kind of our journey went from me having my experience. We did the market research, which really gave us the fire in the belly to solve this problem. And actually that Having that such a strong mission really helped knock down a lot of those lack of self-belief barriers because suddenly it wasn't about me or Sasha. It was this problem has to be solved and we can't see anyone solving it. So we've just got to get on and try and do our best. And then in terms of kind of going from, from idea to 
reality, we did a, a critical stage before we built the app, which was we wanted to test our core hypothesis that strangers would share food with one another without spending a lot of money that we didn't have building an app that arguably no one would want. And so what we did was we did a proof of concept using WhatsApp. And so we invited 12 people who'd done our market research survey who all lived near to one another but didn't know each other and didn't know us. And we asked them to take part in this experiment for two weeks. And we said, we're going to pop you on this WhatsApp group. And if you've got any spare food, then here are some neighbors who, who might want to take it off your hands. And we waited for a good sort of day or two before any sharing took place in that WhatsApp group. And then the sharing did start taking place and lots happened over the following two weeks. And it was when we met with those participants and debriefed with them and they said, you absolutely have to build this and it only needs to be slightly better than the WhatsApp group. And how can I help? They were so enthusiastic about it. That was then what really gave us the impetus to sort of make this official and to invest in getting an app built. I love what you say, which is, you know, in terms of business, but also these are principles that you could apply to creativity. That's it's not about waiting for inspiration to strike. It's about taking inspiration from the world and looking at the problems that you can constructively help solve. So but but you've also touched on your imposter syndrome, which I think many, many people would resonate with. You know, who am I? Who am I to help solve this enormous problem? So talk to yeah. me about your imposter syndrome and how you manage to, to break yourself free from that cycle of paralysis that we can sometimes experience. The, the honest answer is I absolutely had those thoughts, but I really, I just do not let myself dwell on those at all. And obviously, kind of once you get going, you start building up some momentum and that is really, really helpful. But I can remember in the first, you know, the first year is the hardest, right? You know, you've just quit your job. Mm. Everyone's asking you what you're doing and you need to, you feel like you need a word or a title to describe it, but it felt incredibly presumptuous to say, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. It's like, well, I haven't even built anything or delivered anything yet. So, so what am I? So you definitely, you have those kind of existential moments. But as I say, having a co-founder going through the same thing was incredibly helpful. And nowadays, you know, we are trying to tackle a climate emergency. So I have not got the luxury of wallowing around in imposter syndrome. I've just got, all I've got to do is show up every single day and try my best and just rinse, wash, repeat on that without fail. And that's how I, how I get through it. And how would you describe the type of organization you are? Because I've heard Olio referred to as a for-profit, purposeful business with the mission of a charity. So what, what's the expression that you would use? That's a good question. <laughs> I would like to think that sort of the model that Olio has is the future business paradigm, i.e. it's one that combines profit with purpose. Uh, to me, it just is absolutely crazy that it is seen as acceptable right now for a business to generate enormous shareholder returns and enormous amounts of profits, and yet in parallel be destroying communities and, and destroying the planet. And I really do think that's a very short-termist sort of approach to business. And I also get quite frustrated because we do live in this, with this kind of weird dichotomy at the moment where people think that if you're doing good, you must be a charity. And if you're growing really fast and rapidly, then you will be a business, but you are probably having all sorts of negative effects on the world. 
And we think that that really is, you know, that that sort of dichotomous approach is really shortchanging humanity. And actually what we need is that third way, which is profit with purpose. And we very deliberately set Olio up as a business, not as a charity, because we knew that we needed to have impact at scale kind of yesterday. And we couldn't point to a single charity that had scaled at the pace of the tech startups. And so it was very clear to us, plus mine and Sasha's background was not in the nonprofit or charitable world. You know, we wouldn't sort of even know where to start with that. So for us, it was very natural that Olio should be a business, but one that has its mission at its core. And we're asked the whole time about how do we reconcile profit with purpose? And I've reflected on that a lot. And the best answer I've come up with is is one that's an analogy, which is that, you know, kind of 10, 20 years ago, people would be asking business leaders, how do you reconcile treating your employees well and being a profitable business? And we've moved on beyond that debate and dialogue now, right? We know that if you want to be a successful, profitable business, then you need to invest uh, in your people. and, And that creates a virtuous circle. And I believe absolutely the same will be the case with profit with purpose. And we would absolutely agree with you because inherent in our definition of a purposeful business is the need to make money, to actually be Yeah, you've got to be sustainable. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And we want our businesses to flourish, but the point is they need to exist over and above themselves and actually make a difference. So it's interesting you talk about the fact that you're not a charity, but what's striking about your organization is that you do actually have a volunteering platform combined with like behaviors like distributing leaflets and flies in the community. Yeah. So there is a really strong local aspect to what you do. Yes, there is. And certainly in the early days, that definitely caused some investors to be scratching their heads with perplexion that we were sort of <laughs> scaling a business with a volunteering network. But we, you're correct, we have two types of volunteers. So the first one is what we call our ambassadors. So we have over 50,000 people who have reached out to volunteer to help spread the word about Olio in their local community. And we empower them either with content to share online and or we will mail them posters and letters and flyers. So kind of hyper-local guerrilla marketing that they can do in their local communities. And then the second type of volunteering that we have is what I touched on earlier on, our Food Waste Heroes programs. So we now have 35,000 trained volunteers who we recruit via the app. We train them online on our proprietary food safety management system, and then we match them with their local business so that they can go to that business at the end of the day and collect all of their unsold food, take it home, add it to the app and and redistribute it to the local community. So what has been your biggest learning in setting up Olio? (gasps) So many. (laughs) It's a big question that, isn't it? Oh gosh, where to start? No, I mean, it, it is honestly so so many you know I've definitely kind of learned more setting up earlier than I ever did in my MBA for example some of my lessons well the first one is that there's no such thing as a silver bullet I think for the first couple of years it's very very easy to believe that the next feature the next marketing campaign the next partnership is going to be the big one that's going to unlock stratospheric growth and The reality is, I have discovered, sadly, there is no such thing as a silver bullet. There's just a shit ton of lead bullets. You've just got to keep on plugging away at it, kind of showing up every day. I think the other major learning as well, which sort of links into that, is pretty much around about the founding of Olio, we read a book called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. 
And we have wholeheartedly embraced that philosophy of just getting product out there in its imperfect state, testing it, measuring, learning, and just going through that feedback loop as quickly as possible. And that has been a really integral part of how we have managed to grow as an organization. So that's, uh, I really, really embrace the, the lean startup philosophy. Yeah, I mean, if you wait for perfection, we'll be, we'll be waiting all day, won't yeah, we? Exactly, especially when you've got very limited resources. You've just got to get it out there. Yeah, totally. So, so which entrepreneurs then or organizations do you admire the most? Where have you drawn your inspiration? I find it very hard to pick just one. And I think that's also, that's kind of not my psyche. I gladly steal wonderful ideas from absolutely everywhere that I look. As I touched on, both Sasha and I are obsessive podcast listeners. And so on a daily basis, I am learning something from someone else who is who has gone before us. But I definitely take my inspiration from uh, diverse founders, I would say, actually, you know, both in terms of gender, but also ethnicity and socio-demographic class and, and every flavor of diversity, because I can really relate to how challenging it is to be a diverse founder. But also I'm really inspired by the diverse founders because nine times out of the 10, they're solving real problems existential problems for society and the planet I find that really inspiring so through the lens of food waste what do you think the world will look like in five years time well being very honest with you I don't look anymore at Olio just through the lens of food waste because we have expanded Olio beyond just saving food to actually sort of saving the world's precious resources more broadly so we now have a non-food section where people can give away other household items, so toiletries and cleaning products and books, clothes and toys. And we also recently launched a section of the app called Borrow, which connects people to lend and borrow everyday household items. And our vision of the world is one in which we move from the current linear extractive model of consumption, where when you want to consume something, you'll buy it brand new. It's been ripped out of the planet, shipped halfway across the world. You use it for 5 or 10% of its useful life. It's tossed into landfill. And we've got billions of us doing that on sort of rinse, wash, repeat. And instead, we have a vision of the world, which is a much more circular, sustainable, regenerative economy. And that is one that when you want to consume, you'll first and foremost think, well, what resources already exist in my local community that I can utilize? And you'll go there first before buying anything brand new. So on Olio, that looks like taking for free what your neighbours don't want, and also uh, lending and borrowing everyday household items rather than buying brand new. And this is so critical because something we came across on our journey is another mind-blowing concept called Earth Overshoot Day. That's the day in the year in which humanity has used all the resources that the Earth can replenish in a year. It was first measured in 1969, and back then Earth Overshoot Day was the 31st of December. So what that means is humanity used in a year what the earth could replenish in a year. We were living in equilibrium with the planet back then. If you fast forward to this year, Earth Overshoot Day was the 29th of July. And so what that means is that every single thing that every single one of us, seven and a half billion people are consuming after the 29th of July is net-net depletive to the planet. And so that is why we have this vision of 
the world, which is one that is hyper-local and it's circular and it's sustainable because the current economic model and our economy and our way of living, by definition, cannot continue as it is. And as a final question, if you could share your food with anyone in the world, who might that be? Oh, gosh, that is a good one. Not particularly original. I'm going to go with David Attenborough. Oh, yes. Dave, <laughs> oh, I mean, I would share my food with David, for sure. <gasps> yes. <laughs> I don't think many would disagree with that. No. <laughs> Tessa, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for sharing your good on purpose story with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Good On Purpose. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to tune in for more, don't forget to hit subscribe before you leave. We'd love to hear your feedback and your suggestions for future episodes and guests. And you can do that either by getting in touch by email, hello at goodagency.co.uk, or you can find out more on our website, which is www.goodagency.co.uk. Thanks again for tuning in and hope you can join us next time.